Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Abbas Jamshidi has recently finished his doctoral degree in comparative literature at the University of Maryland College Park. In his dissertation, Dr. Jamshidi mapped the trajectories of the representation of Arabs as the other in Persian and Parsi literary traditions. He has published on ethnocentric tendencies in modern Persian literary criticism, and most recently, he finished drafting an article on Shihi passion plays and how historically these plays were used as an apparatus for representing the Sunnis as the other of the Shihi in Iran. Dr. Jamshidi recently gave a talk here at ACMCU in December and got a chance to connect with us for this episode of Building Bridges. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here on Building Bridges. Thank you for having me. And... Just to give our listeners a sense of your background and, and why you chose to study the field that you did, could you give a brief summary of your experience, what you're studying, and, and what brought you to that field? So I come from um, uh, diverse backgrounds. My mother is a Sunni and my dad is a Shia. So I've, over time, in the past like, uh, 20, 30 years, I've been... Uh, like very fortunate to see uh, at the time my dad being a Shia a minority in southern Iran and then my mother being a minority in the city of Shiraz. So that uh, taught me to think about how an individual is turned uh, into a different member of a dominant culture. So I fell in love with the topic and uh, I, I honestly feel it with every uh, like uh, bit of my life. And uh, Flash forward when I wanted to like uh, continue my um, studies and build a career for myself, I found that the best thing to do is to uh, like look at uh, to, uh, look at in what is inside me, and um, start working on what makes uh, the Sunnis uh, like the other of a dominant Shi culture, and in addition to that, how, uh, why Iranians, uh, my mother is a minority, but she taught me terrible things about Arabs. So <laughs> it's it's amazing, that's uh, that's very common in Iran. So and uh, like en- ethnic animosity toward uh, Arabs in Iran is a, is a big deal, especially in the past uh, 30, 40 years. Now, um, I turned this, it wasn't, an easy job, <laughs> and uh, with uh, a little bit of uh, theoretical background, I could uh, like make uh, a, little, a few discoveries. So this othering that you mentioned in your talk, it's something that does occur in many cultures. Um, for for the topic and the subject matter focus that you're touching on specifically, what would you say was the root of this othering in in Iran in in Persia? Um, 
As far as the Arab other and the process of like uh, othering the Arabs uh, is concerned, and then we can talk about Sunni others. And by the way, we have like uh, Jews and just most recently Baha'is as the Arabs. So other people can talk about them, but I have only limited myself uh, for practical reasons to uh, Arabs and Sunnis. Now, um, the... um, rivalry with the Sunnis is basically uh, because the Safavids in Iran were about to establish a new empire for themselves and in order to separate uh, themselves as far as the identity is concerned from the Ottoman Empire which was the hegemonic source of Islam at the time they needed to create a new system of belief with new rituals and practices that people could uh, like adhere to and the community may be established community of believers may be established so probably I shouldn't be saying this but naturally they uh, uh, gravitated toward uh, antagonizing the Sunnis in order to establish uh, Shi'i identity in contrast uh, in the opposite uh, opposite that identity that was established at the time, Sunnism. Now with the Arabs, it's uh, the same process, but it uh, amazingly achieves itself in a, a different dynamic that is more of Iranians feeling that they are superior because of the ancient heritage that they've got. And um, nationalist Iranians, I should be saying that, not all Iranians are like that. Uh, and then when, I, when they compare themselves to the Arabs who brought their religion of Islam to Iran, they see that uh, that coincided with a period of decline from the golden age that was pre-Islamic times when Iran ruled, uh, like, if not all the globe, half the globe, uh, half the globe, if not all the globe. So that's, <clears throat> these are the sources of the, like the ideology of othering that you can find in the literature. What would you say would be the most surviving documentation of this othering? In your talk, you brought up a lot of uh, depictions, you know, drawings. What would you say has been the most pervasive for the culture um, since you know, since its inception and continues today. So institution of Persian literature is, uh, Persian literature is a very important institution in Persian culture. And uh, basically everything that we know about this idea of Iranian and Iranian-ness is uh, derived, is distilled um, from a literary text. So uh, we have... Because of this reason, we have uh, like a recorded history in Persian literature going back to 2,000 years, to pre-Islamic times. So um, in the institution of literature, in literary texts, you can very easily see how these uh, ideas are formed, transformed, uh, fought against, and uh, like... um, polished over time and uh, turned into a, a reserve, an ideological reserve. When in the 19th century, in uh, mid-19th century, nationalists uh, were looking for signs of their uh, previous anger of Arabs, they just only had to look at the literature before them because these texts did not... Uh, this was the like nationalist 
modern Persian nationalists were the first generation of authors who connected the dots. So we have several of these scattered texts that many times had no idea that the other writer exists because this is before the time of like countries and nations, uh, states. Uh, like um, in Iran, things are like Saadi of Shiraz, like the Shiraz, Shiraz, the city of Shiraz is the whole country for that individual. So he lives in this state, another writer lives in others, another state, and these two most of the time have no idea that others exist and they are um, on the way to become like the canonical figures of Persian literature. Nationalists projected certain sense of coherence among these scattered utterances and created a new narrative out of the evidence that purportedly they could find in Persian literature. That was partly correct, justified, but like these uh, anti-Arab sentiments exist. Nobody can deny that. But were they um, like in a consorted, like um, calculated manner produced over time? No. Nationalists would say yes. So it's a little bit of both. It's, uh, it seems to be showing that both uh, political and sometimes religious leaders could use these this literature from the past, create that cohesion for a certain aim. Now, there's other ways of storytelling other than written storytelling. And one of the themes that you evoked in your talk was this play storytelling. Um, I believe uh, Tazi. Tazia. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what that, where that tradition comes from and, and how that is uh, a part of the othering of Arabs in the eyes of Persians? So one pattern that I've noticed in Persian culture, and that's uh, like a um, uh, uh, usual thing that you find in many cultures, is that uh, the most the literature, literary texts, are read by many people or plays are watched by many people. Plays are even more accessible than uh, text because uh, people just sit down and then consume the message without doing anything, like TVs today. Um, many of the, like the ideological war that is going on is fought, uh, we are fed with it on the TV because we don't have to do anything. We don't have to actually read something. And speaking of Iran in 16th, 17th, 18th century, like, like very few people are literate uh, and finding text is not like libraries or internet at, uh, in modern uh, times. You actually had to pay like hundreds of dollars in today's money to actually have a scribe copy a book for you. If you had the money and if you could find a scribe and if you traveled to that, to the city of Baghdad or the city of Khorasan or Shiraz, there were centers of uh, like education and knowledge. Now, over time, I came to the conclusion that um, so uh, there is a uh, there is a period that literature, uh, uh, written literature, uh, recedes in popularity because of the Mughals attack Iran, and Iran is basically uh, devastated. Now this is the time that also I see a rise in popularity of a dramatic tradition that nowadays we call it Shabi Khani in Iran. Uh, play of representations, literally, or ta'ziya, which is uh, mourning ceremonies. Now, when I started reading the manuscripts and reading, like, um, descriptions of Europeans and also, like, indigenous people sh um, recording the experience of watching these, I was amazed. And I saw that 
the same uh, like um, uh, ideologically driven um, outlook comes now to a uh, dramatic representation and uses this uh, dramatic representation representation as a medium, as resonate, as a uh, as a source of information, in order to disseminate certain thought among people, and people just love it, because at this time uh, we don't have uh, any other source of entertainment, so part of a good number of people came to mourn, that is, that is unbelievable, but also a good number of people just came for entertainment. And uh, we can talk about this, and it created a very exuberant uh, atmosphere in the culture, uh, in the sense that for like a month, people, females, could get out of the house without asking for permission. Because you see, this is this is a hidden side of this, uh, like these morning ceremonies, that the freedom that it created uh, resulted, uh, uh, the freedom that it gave to the females, for example, as a case in point, was tremendous. So you find a lot of Europeans commenting on the rise of prostitution, like prostitutes and harlots, like freely roam the streets without anybody even touching them. Why? Because. If they ask any question, what are you doing, you lonely woman in this street at this time of the, the night, she would say, I'm coming from a morning procession. Mm. So imagine the freedom and uh, like the uh, convenience that it created for the less privileged uh, like members of the society. It's a very complicated picture, and uh, I just approach it from one angle, and that's how text may be used as vehicles for mounting wars against like people that are not friendly with us. Do you think at the time um, when these plays uh, were becoming more a part of, of sociocultural experience within the communities, do you think that regular people, not scholars or, or faith leaders, understood that depictions of their neighbors were overtly being used as a sort of... Uh, uh, coercive political tool to influence thoughts of, of, of the other? I would doubt it because um, at the time uh, we know that um, the majority of the people coming to these, I'm thinking about my sources and the descriptions that we have of the, of the spectators, like 80%, 90%, if not all of them are very simple like ordinary people who come for one reason, to mourn the death of their favorite imam. So were they, uh, did they understand that they are being abused uh, and fed with a certain political ideology? I doubt that. And I doubt that because um, also, um, also because um, like love for the imam and animosity toward uh, uh, his perceived enemies is two fundamental precepts in Shiism. So uh, by tapping into the most foundational aspects, fundamental aspects of your religion, you will find it very hard to separate yourself from uh, what you're watching because you think that it is an occasion uh, that is giving you... Uh, uh, this is a performance that is giving you an occasion in order to be a better Muslim. So, but we know now, flash forward, of course, uh, like 
in the modern world with our like um, um, progressive um, liberal approach to that text to those texts we understand that it wasn't just uh, a, a realistic uh, representation and it was not free from certain political ideologies and nation building motives it's it's a very complex gem different sides have different it has different sides uh, depends on how you look at it from the dramatic aesthetic or political uh, social now you said that during these plays there were visual cues i.e. the bad Arabs would wear a certain color and the good Arabs would, would wear a different color. Is that something that has also been a part of other uh, storytelling traditions? This this color coding of good versus evil, so to speak? Um, we don't have any other uh, dramatic tradition during the time that we have Tazia. Tazia basically uh, is the one and only... We have like jugglers, we have like um, magicians, we have, I don't know, um, uh, animal handlers and uh, wrestlers and a variety of other like street uh, like performance but they but the tazias are super advanced and of course it comes at a price and that advancing over time has also come to the color coding and marking that's nowadays we call it a bad thing we have come to understand that that's a bad thing because it leaves little room for personal understanding that I don't, or probably I like. But at the time, in order to like disseminate, very simple, in order to disseminate the message of Shiism that Hussein is good, so they put like a, a, a green or white Prophet Muhammad's color. Hussein is Prophet Muhammad's grandson, and he has the... Um, uh, uh, ambition to continue Prophet's uh, flag, uh, like the standard Islam, the flag of Islam, and this is the bad guy. He has blood on his hand because he has red on. So yes, it's ideologically. Nowadays we call it ideologically driven. Nowadays we call it like flagging. Nowadays we call it it suppresses like uh, thinking and so on and so forth. But at the time, in the throes of nation building. These things don't matter. So fast forward to the 21st century. This, this way in which of depicting the protagonist and the antagonist in modern storytelling does kind of evoke some of the themes of painting the other as certain physical attributes. I mean, if you look at Disney film-like stories, even back in the 50s, yeah. the bad person would often have characterizations that one could say have been evoked from other characterizations, even phobias or uh, anti-Semitism, for example, uh, that was brought out in the 1940s. So, you know, it's I, I would you know in listening to this and watching your your talk, it's not a stretch for me to see some evocations in other storytelling where where a, either a political or a uh, theological differentiation is augmented by this demonization as opposed to a showcasing of understanding. Do you see there a current awareness of this demonization, of this uh, characterization of the other? And, and what ways are being done to prevent against it in, in current transitioning of knowledge? Before I answer that, there, uh, like the, ca the, uh, the case of Iran is a very complicated case 
complicated case in the sense that uh, when the Islamic Republic of uh, the Islamic Revolution happened in 1979, uh, like the issue of the Sunni other and the Arab other became national security matters. So the institution of literature that used to be the one and only hegemonic institution of like saying terrible things about the other see, because of censorship ceased to be uh, the carrier of the ideology. It's amazing. Expats leaving Iran, escaping Iran, continued the tradition, so on the blogs, on their Facebook pages, on their books published outside Iran, yes, they make recourse to that. You see Abbas Marafi publishing that in Germany, um, yes, in Berlin, yes, he is, it's very easy for him to do that, but nowadays in Iran, if you say that, you will end up in jail. Not probably for the best and the most uh, like uh, gracious reason that you wa I want to believe, but because, plain and simple, it uh, fuels the fan of animosity toward Iran. That's the justification in Iran. And a lot of the Sunnis that are saying terrible things about uh, Omar are discouraged because of what um, ISIS is doing to other Shias in, uh, in Iraq and Lebanon, for example, or in Syria because of their careless, irresponsible things that people are doing in, in, uh, uh, in some cities in Iran. Now, as far as consciousness, I'm not sure because basically nobody talks about them. Now, you need to create the knowledge, what I was just trying to do, and then you would like raise awareness and then on a massive scale, like a good number of people start thinking differently or start mm, doubting what like what I did with my mother that said that we are like these, I don't know, lizard eating, camel milk drinking Arabs just uh, wrecked our country. Although she is a minority that is suffering from the persecution of, uh, of certain Shis in a Shi dominant culture. Now, Ignorance is, uh, is pervasive, and I don't see the will of the government or the educational system to do that. Um, behind that, of course, we shouldn't, I, I never only use, I never only blame the government as the easiest thing. I blame the people who are like above and around the government. We are also responsible for this lack of uh, knowledge and uh, rampant ignorance. We haven't uh, digged up, uh, dug up the literature to see, to trace the, like the trajectories of this metaphor, of this ideology, to see that ooh, saying this fits into the narrative. Like, like uh, nowadays, thanks to the wonderful job that um, Jewish scholars have done, nowadays we know certain things qualify as racial supremacy. It's like the same situation in Iran, but minus the scholars, minus the wonderful job that uh, like League of Anti-Defamation has done. We need that in Iran. I see this space, but it's a matter of uh, national security. If you want to achieve like everything that we've achieved here uh, in one day in Iran, there you can start definitely conservatively in a very like uh, with moderate ambitions but uh, taking it to the social media would be very rewarding because like telegram has something like 30 million users in Iran 
That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. That doesn't mean that like they are checking their messages every day, but you can reach a good number of people like through Telegram and Facebook and Instagram. I don't see that. I don't see the activists. I don't see the policymakers. I don't see on different levels. I don't see think tanks. I don't see anybody in a in an NGO uh, driven by um, like uh, a rapprochement, friendship, even coming together to sit down to talk approach. I don't see that because there is no money in it. There is like millions of times more money poured into creating, uh, repeating, uh, like uh, aggrandizing the animosity so that people would um, fear-mongering, we call it fear-mongering. Uh, like the, uh, the, the leaders of Iran and other like neighboring Arab nations are doing that wonderfully, pretty successfully, since Iran has been living under the fear of uh, like uh, a military attack ever since the past 40 years. So we shouldn't expect the civil rights movement to thrive. So every time that my friends compare like the, I don't know, women rights activists uh, or the women rights situation in Iran with the thing that we have in Iran, in America, I kind of laugh at them because they are thinking like ahistorically. America has never been under the shadow of war because if that happens, if you go to a judge and say that, say my, I don't know, my divorce rights, my, my inherent rights as a woman are trampled on because of these Islamic laws, they would say, is this the urgent topic of the day? Like the Saudis and Israelis and Americans are about to attack us. Is this the most important? Boom, that's it. Yeah. That's been the story in the past at least 20 years. I mean, that's, that's something I think that a lot of people, a lot of intellectuals don't really think about is when you're in a state of fear because of real problems that are sometimes out of the control of, of a state, um, it's difficult to create an environment where the type of dialogues could take place that can bring about a reawareness of the connections that you may have to those around you. So in kind of looking at this and going forward, what message would you have to those out there, maybe on social media, young people, uh, faith leaders, what can people do in their own daily lives to try and combat this othering, this demonization, so that maybe some things can change even while other things may not change overnight? Yeah, a little bit of soul searching to begin with. I don't find that. I can only talk about Iranians. I can talk about the Arabs. Uh, I'm not that familiar with them, with their culture and their way of life. But with Iranians, um, it needs um, uh, like a uh, certain amount of tolerance toward the other, your enemy, to be able to come forward and acknowledge that you have been mistreating him or her, uh, and then to sit down side by side and then um, consider uh, like a, a dialogue on equal terms. Now, <coughs> uh, um, the leaders of Iran have been super vocal about that when it comes to American imperialism or European colonialism. They are saying that every time that they travel, like the president of Iran travels to the UN and talks, they talk like, um, like uh, uh, as if Iran was colonized. Like 
it's very much the rhetoric that they use is as if they are copy pasting from uh, like decolonizing African nations. I believe that. But part of the problem that they have created is on them. So they have created this, because let's be honest, like in the Middle East right now, uh, we have several countries uh, in the, at the middle of nation building, like Iran, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Israel and Turkey. So these are pretty serious regional rivals. Now, the easiest thing to make sure, to do, to make sure that people would, um, uh, to bring people under the flag, the moment that the nation is attacked, is to exaggerate the animosity and the threat that is coming from the outside. Yeah. All of them are doing that in a wonderful manner. And so uh, when I speak, sit down with my Egyptian or Saudi friends, uh, I'll s I, I become very surprised that they think that people in Iran not everybody in Iran wants to savagely kill the Saudis. That's what the government is telling them. That's what the, like the Egyptian uh, government is telling them. That's what the Iranian government is telling them, that basically um, everybody in Saudi is a supporter of Daesh, of ISIS, and they are looking for a moment, the opportunity, the slightest opportunity, to basically start a Shia-killing party. These are unfactual, these are like um, <laughs> fake news. <laughs> Nowadays we have come to call them yeah. fake news. But um, there are no competing narrative here. That's also another side of part of the problem. Compared with uh, what we have in the US, we have at least a few like news agencies that are a little more in independent. And they have their own uh, like power to speak about the uh, like the misinformation that they find on on, on national t on national news, for example, we don't have that anymore. We certain uh, like um, uh, members of the diaspora are trying to do that, but the outreach is limited. It's yeah. nothing. Somebody from inside should do that, and <laughs> you can imagine the difficulty of doing that under the shadow of war. You will be found you will be labeled as an accomplice by saying that, no, the supreme leader, what just he said yesterday is, is a lie, and actually Saudis are, you know, boom. The second sentence makes me, uh, uh, helps my enemies inside Iran to connect me, uh, like, wrongly to anybody who says that, to their, I don't know, to certain... Pakistan people in Pakistan or certain people in Kurdistan or certain people in Azerbaijan or certain people in uh, Arab countries as separatists. So uh, a long road ahead for trying to create a sense of a shared humanity between people that have a lot in common, um, both regionally, uh, ethnically, culturally. Um, what, what would you say is one thing that helps bring people together. I mean, we're, we here are, you know, at the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding. All the work that we do is to try and bring an awareness to the Abrahamic faiths and, and how there is so much in common more than there is not. What would you say is something that Iranians do have in common with, um, with their neighbors that they may consider the other? You know, um, the books that I have been uh, collecting, and I spoke about them um, a little bit, are argue from, uh, argue 
pros, um, make an ar- a pro-Sunni argument uh, from a religious standpoint. That should be half the picture. The other half is uh, like civil rights. The other half is like uh, the rights of Sunnis in Iran that are have been disenfranchised and have uh, like have never been hired in like top ranking positions. Do you know that? So that should also be uh, something important because many people. So let me give you an example. Like a, t- a terrible earthquake happened in Iran in the in the province of Kurdistan, a Sunni majority. Yeah. And I was, uh, I, I make sure that I add myself to these um, telegram channels that I monitor the, f- the, the interaction between uh, potentially Sunni, uh, uh, potentially non-Sunni community, uh, majority culture with the Sunni community. And with, because of the sheer tragedy that happened there, like other Iranians are, Beautifully, I could see in these um, channels that the Sunnis emerged for the first time as first humans, and then Iranians, and finally as a Sunni. Now, in this order, I guess people will find it much easier to approach each other. Now, these writers in Iran are doing a wonderful job, but how many people are still interested in religious debates? limited number of people. And how many people would be promoted by listening to a discussion of um, camaraderie from a religious standpoint? It definitely alienates a number of people. So we need other publishers and we, and we need other scholars, other like activists, other, um, I don't know, people who would focus on the human rights aspect of disenfranchising the Sunni other from a religious standpoint. They are disenfranchised. They're like um, the poverty that you find in Sunni majority states is mind-bending. We can talk about that. I don't see the uh, interest. I don't see the even the scholarly community. Uh, you, I expected a lot from the Persian studies scholars, very progressive people, very liberal thinkers and so on and so forth when it comes to their area of scholar, uh, areas of specialty. But when it comes to the Sunnis and Shis, they basically are not as eager as they are, uh, as you want them to be. So until we find somebody that fills the other half of the picture, uh, makes it complete, we would not be able to see a real improvement. Now, these books are doing a wonderful job again by convincing believers. Not everybody in Iran is a believer. By convincing the believers that, okay, it's okay to be friendly with your neighbor who also supports the person that kills your favorite imam. Now, that's that's a big, um, like... um, that's a big, expectation. Yeah, it's a big ask. Yeah. So and a lot of people have believed that, you know, the 11th edition of this book speaks, right? It's not just only one book at a time. They are reprinted multiple times because they are creating certain, I don't know, I call it uh, counter-sectarian, that they, are, they have come to understand that, okay, you may have different opinions, but you need to live in peace, Another uh, an expression in English, uh, let's agree to disagree. 
They basically are trying to do that, and they are doing a wonderful job. Well, that is hopeful. It is. I'm, I'm very optimistic, and uh, the more I uh, buy books, the more I'm convinced, because they are adding to each other, and they are um, basically trying to break new grounds. But unfortunately, they never, because this is not area of specialty and probably a red line, they never touch on uh, either, uh, on the ugly side of the everyday life of the Sunnis. They speak about their uh, presence in the mosques. They speak about uh, tolerance and not disrespecting their uh, holy figures. Yeah. But they never talk about... Uh, the poverty in there because it's outside there. Now we need somebody that talks about that in a real, like, um, communicative manner, not just again another scholarly work that yeah. just only 400 scholars to be optimistic reads and just libraries buy. No, something that people may read and connect to, like Telegram channel that I told you, that these like heartbreaking pictures of Sunnis speaking. Some of some of these Sunnis in Iran even don't speak Persian. They only speak Kurdish. Yeah. Now trying to speak some like um, rudimentary Persian, thanking the non-Kurdish, non-Sunni community for the for the donations that they've sent to her. I saw this myself. Is very encouraging. I have goosebumps. So uh, these are like beautiful images that we can use in order to create that ideal that I have in mind. Well, uh, hopefully. There will be more development soon, and I, and I, we from ACMCU, encourage the work that you're doing, and wish you so much so much success with all the work. And for those listening out there, we're going to be putting up the presentation on our YouTube channel. And should any work come out, we'll definitely update that. But we wanted to thank you again thank so, you so much. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate your cause. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter, at ACMCU, and like our Facebook page, at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes. <laughs>